Closed doors, open windows, warm breezes. And we'll explain. Welcome. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Glad you're here in the next hour. Really good sample of what Annex Wealth Management does on behalf of our clients, but it's only a sample. It's only a glimpse. Best place to go is our website, AnnexWealth.com. Look over everything we do. On this show, we're going to talk about spousal social security. Ask Annex is on the way. Toward the end of the show, ramifications when inheriting money. I know what you're thinking. Let me try. But there are some there are some things that you need to think about. We've got a lot of estate planning attorneys on staff here at Annex Wealth Management, and we walk people through it. I'm Danny Clayton in the studio, Dr. Brian Jacobson, our chief economist. Welcome. It's great to be here. Dave Spano, President CEO, Annex Wealth Management. What's up, Dave? Yeah, thanks, Danny. Of course, we had a really good week this last week. Uh, you know, we think about where we were in the S&P 500 really moving forward, and we saw some good returns all the way across the board from the S&P 500 to small caps. Yes, that is correct. It was actually a great week, Fine. Finally, the S&P 500 broke above its previous peak, which was set back in January of 2022. Seems like over the last couple of weeks, we've sort of approached that level, bounced off of it. But then all of a sudden, tech once again comes to the rescue of the markets and pushes us away above the S&P 500's previous peak. Yeah, let's talk about that. Of course, we saw that uh, it was led by tech. And you'll recall that late last year, we thought that we were going to get a widening out of the rally, but really good returns out of two names. That, that really blew the doors off, Taiwan Semiconductor and Super Microcomputers. Super Microcomputers up over 37% just on Friday alone. Yeah, that was pretty incredible. And it, they're not actually scheduled to release their numbers, their final numbers until like January 29th. But they came out pre-announced because honestly, they were just so good. I think that they were so excited they needed to share it with the world. And I'm grateful that they did. There was a lot of concern over the last few weeks that maybe the artificial intelligence hype had gone too far. But the hype is a bit of reality, especially for some of these companies. You look at the revenue growth. Taiwan Semiconductor, when we were listening in on that call, it was really fascinating because they have had a bit of an overhang as far as the tension between Taiwan and China. And there's been concerns about, you know, are there going to be restrictions as far as their ability to send chips to different places? But they guided very strongly as far as what 2024 might bring as far as people upgrading their equipment to really take advantage of artificial intelligence. A lot of people did computer upgrades during COVID. Everybody was working from home, but maybe people need to do another upgrade so they can start using some of this newer technology. You know, there was this big event that was happening in Davos, Switzerland. It's an annual event, and all they talked about was artificial intelligence. It kind of made me feel a little nervous that that was their their key topic, but let's talk about what Davos, Switzerland, and the event is. Sure, yeah, so in Davos, they call it, uh, you know, they refer to it by the city's name, but it's the World Economic Forum, and they do it every single year where they fly in. In very wealthy individuals and powerful people from different parts of Surprised government. Surprised you weren't there, Brian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Strangely, I, I suspect my invitation got lost in the mail. <laughs> sure. That must have been it, right? Because uh, it's a lot of people that sometimes they're like, you know, it's a bunch of billionaires getting together, trying to talk about the world's problems and come up with solutions. And flying in on all their private jets and talking about climate green energy, by the way, yes. <laughs> uh, but that is what happened. And of course, you know, a couple of people weren't invited, including Elon Musk, which was interesting, but they talked
talked a lot about AI. So there mm-hmm. was a rally in these some of these tech stocks that we thought could expand. But the, what they really did talk about as well is a lot of economic news. They did. And they are very concerned about, you know, like information security. How is it that they're going to actually regulate artificial intelligence? The economic numbers have been very favorable. Uh, Christine Lagarde, the chair of the European Central Bank, she spoke about how monetary policy there in Europe, you know, they've had inflation coming lower, but not fast enough for her tastes where she's thinking that they should maybe start cutting rates, let's say in the middle of of summer, so perhaps in June. So there are some concerns, especially over in Europe, about the slow growth and inflation coming down not as quickly as in the U.S. I think we tend to forget that the United States had very good economic growth in 2023. Europe, not so much. Right. And we do want to spend some time on that economic news, but I want to come back. You mentioned Christine Lagarde. She's suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. She did say that if he does get elected, well, first of all, she tried to gather some support from Germany and some other countries that said that he will be hurtful not Mm -hmm. only to the economics, but also to NATO. So uh, she's getting involved in politics, which is really surprising. It it shocked me when I heard what she said, because oftentimes the people in those positions in governments know better than to opine on other countries' elections. But that was clearly not top of her mind this time. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Know the difference? One team, one plan, one fee. We do investment and retirement planning, tax planning and estate planning. Head to our website, AnnexWealth.com. I know we can help. Click that Get Started button. In the studio, Dave Spano, our president and CEO, Dr. Brian Jacobson is our chief economist. By the way, did I see you Friday on CNBC? You were talking about cash. Did you get into it with Rana Sano a little bit? It was a little bit. We had a little bit of a disagreement there. Right. It was friendly, though. No, it was friendly, and I'm glad. I mean, you know, they overshot uh, out of the new headquarters, and they showed the entire world that uh, the snow that was covered in Wisconsin. <laughs> that's just fine. And, and there was a debate of between you and Ron and Sana about what was going to happen with the Federal Reserve and when these cuts were going to happen. There wasn't a debate that they were going to have a cut. It's when they begin. Exactly. And so his point was that he thought that they would cut very soon and do it aggressively because they can. So in the background of actually good economic data. So it's very different if they're cutting in the face of economic strength or weakness. And they can do it in strength because inflation is coming lower. Our point that we've discussed on the investment committee is they might want to do this as a two-step. They might want to first slow the pace of the shrinking of their balance sheet and then set up the rate cut. So it's really a matter of the timing of the first cut that we disagreed on, and then also the pace at which they're going to need to cut. And we're going to spend a lot of time on that when we come back. But folks, a lot of things are happening right now, and we're getting cross currents from across the world. Everything, as we know, in the Middle East, the Red Sea. And so this is the time to know what you own, why you own it, and how much you're paying for it. That is our Week in Review, always available on demand at the top of the hour, wherever you get your podcasts. Also in the Axiom newsletter, if you're not signed up for that, make sure you get that. Still to come, what you need to know about spousal social security this is money talk the annex wealth management show go pack go we're going to be right back on 620 wtmj we're back quick reminder this show is going to be available as a podcast top of the hour axiom free weekly newsletter sign up for that so you can get our week in review i'm danny clayton dr brian jacobson chief economist is with us dave spano's our president and ceo thanks danny you know we talked about closed doors open windows and warm breezes to start the show and of course closed doors was the fact that they're not in any hurry to cut rates apparently and open windows as the fed began tapering their quantitative tightening 
But let's talk about warm breezes because most of the country was under an Arctic blast this past week. That's right. Yes. So for the most recent data, it's more like cold breezes. But so maybe uh, I'm just being optimistic about the outlook, some warm breezes, good things ahead. But when we look at some of the data that came out, for example, retail sales numbers for December were a lot better than expected. And a good portion of that could be because actually December was somewhat warmer Mm -hmm. than usual. A lot of statisticians, what they try to do is seasonally adjust the numbers. So if you have Christmas, right, you know retail sales are going to typically be a lot higher then than other times. So that's a seasonal adjustment, but they don't weather adjust the numbers. And so if December is somewhat warmer than usual, the economic numbers, especially retail sales, are better. Now, January numbers, we're going to probably see some payback because now we've got this Arctic blast to deal with. Right. And not only just in consumer spending, and we're seeing that, and we're going to watch that because some of the big banks have talked about maybe some credit losses. And let's Mm -hmm. just talk about that. But I want to come back to this Arctic blast in just a second. Sure. So with the bank earnings, if you look at traditional banks, especially, let's say, JP Morgan, the bigger ones out there, they are expecting that their losses on credit are going to be lower. In other words, consumers are not going to be increasing their defaults. However, Discover Financial Services, so they're one of the big credit card issuers, they actually, their stock did not do very well because their credit losses were a lot higher than expected. So some of your traditional bank lending, yes, people are still servicing that debt pretty well, but on the credit card side of things, it's a little sketchier. And that's the reason why we have to watch that. Of course, we all know that two-thirds of GDP is consumer spending. If the consumer continues to spend, we'll have a positive GDP number. But I saw this past week that Jeffrey Gunlock, the famous bond manager, said there's a 75% chance that we will see negative GDP in the next 18 months. You know, that would be really interesting if we did, because it would have to be driven by a rather dramatic slowdown in consumer spending. And I can see an argument for that type of slowdown if the Fed makes a mistake. However, when we look back at history, 1986, 1996, even 2019, the Fed was able to cut rates without a lot of economic weakness. They're being proactive. And I think that's a key thing. We do have to monitor it. It's hit or miss here, where if they are cutting, where the labor market is still staying strong, creating 100,000 jobs per month, if not more, I doubt we'll see that negative GDP number. Danny, you know, we've got a presentation coming up that both Brian and I are going to do. It's a webinar, and that's coming up, folks. Yeah, we're really looking forward to that. It's going to happen on Wednesday. Wednesday. Brian, what was that headline? $8 trillion on the on Yeah, the it was about $8.8 trillion. It's, it sounds like a lot because it is. Okay. <laughs> so Wednesday, webinar, hot topic, cash on the sidelines, how to make it work. Happens Wednesday at 3 p.m. Details at AnnexWealth.com slash events. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management. We're all familiar with Social Security, but what about spousal? Social Security. Here to talk about it, two members of our financial planning team. First, Arabella Perrins, a financial planning specialist at Annex. Welcome, Arabella. Hi, Danny. And Eric Strom, financial planning manager, CFP. Hi, Danny. Let's go over what exactly is a spousal benefit. Social Security was actually created back in 1935. A few years later, in 1939, new legislation added spousal benefits, which were really designed to protect the non-working spouse and allow them to get some amount of benefit as well. So how is that benefit determined? 
The spousal benefit is a combination of both your spouse's full retirement age benefit, but also the timing of when you start your own benefit. And this adds an extra layer of complication in that there's some timing to this. And so there's some strategy that you can have with both when your partner starts their benefit, but also when you start your own benefit that can impact not only your own benefit, but that spousal benefit that you qualify for. And so these benefits are interacting with each other. So our team goes through many hours of training to know all of these rules inside out to help our clients determine the timing between spouses to optimize all of these benefits and how they interrelate with each other. So when can somebody begin collecting spousal benefits? You can start your spousal benefit as early as age 62, but two key things to remember. Number one, you can't start your spousal benefit until your spouse has in turn started their benefit first. And because of that interaction, as Arabella alluded to, it is quite complicated uh, in that manner. Now, another factor though, number two, is that either taking your own benefit or spousal benefit early, and by early I mean before your full retirement age, leads to a permanent reduction in your spousal benefit and or your own benefit. Because of that, it is very complicated and important to be careful about when to start that. Finally, to get your full spousal benefit, you have to wait until your full retirement age. Now, interestingly, your full retirement age is when your spousal benefit has stopped growing. Everyone thinks, oh, the benefits grow till age 70, not spousal. And that adds another extra wrinkle to this. True or false, you can get up to 50% of your spouse's full benefit. That is true. So the spousal benefit only reaches a maximum of 50%. And that is a keyword, maximum. So just like Eric mentioned, you cannot delay beyond full retirement age and get over that 50%. So if you start before full retirement age, you do get that permanent reduction below 50%, but it can never go above that 50% amount. Well, I can see how this gets complicated. We're talking about spousal social security benefits. If somebody's widowed or divorced, can they still claim spousal social security benefits? Yes. So starting off with widows, widows do not receive spousal social security benefits, but rather something that we call survivor benefits. So survivor benefits have different rules to spousal benefits. It is a completely different ball game in that you can get as much as 100% of the deceased spouse's benefit. On the other hand, ex-spouses can claim spousal benefits as long as they were married for at least 10 years. And a very common concern that we get from clients is, will my ex know when I've claimed on their benefit? Do I have to reach out and contact my ex? And luckily for everybody, these ex-spousal benefits are isolated from your ex-spouse. So your ex will not know if or when you apply based on their benefit. If you're remarried, though, you don't get to double dip. You can't claim your ex's benefit. Right. So you cannot get a ex-spousal benefit if you remarry. The one caveat is if you did remarry and then that marriage ended, then you actually could. In general, if you remarry, no, that's off the table. You can no longer do that. This sounds kind of complex. Is the application process, what do you have to do to get Social Security spousal benefits? Before we answer that, let me say one other thing, that we're commonly asked about two former strategies that no longer are available regarding spousal. There used to be something called file and suspend and another strategy called restricted application. We get a lot of client questions still about those like, hey, can I file for my own benefit, pause it, and then get my spousal benefit and let mine grow? The days of doing those two strategies are over. They were legislated out of existence and they are no longer able to be used. 
If you do apply, though, Arabella, walk us through what that process looks like. The most important thing to understand about the application process when it comes to spousal benefits is something we call the deemed filing rule. So when someone files for one benefit, so this is either your own benefit or your spousal benefit, you will actually be deemed to be filing for both benefits at the same time. And the Social Security Administration will look at which of these benefits is higher at the time and you will receive whatever that higher amount is. You don't have to specially designate that you're applying for the spousal or your own benefit. You're just applying for both at the same time. And when it comes to applying, there are several ways that you can do that. You can apply online, over the phone, or at your local Social Security office. Arabelle Parents, a financial planning specialist at Annex. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Danny. Eric Strom, financial planning manager, CFP, enrolled agent with the IRS. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. Let's talk about locations because we're really excited about our brand new headquarters in Brookfield. Also, Lake Country, Mequon, Appleton, downtown Milwaukee, inside the Pfister, Madison, Naples, Florida, Libertyville, Illinois. Time for news. And for that, let's go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Time for Ask Annex. As always, you've got a question for us, you head to our website. We love to hear from everybody. You don't have to be a client. Website is AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask tab in the studio. Matt Morsey, Investment Team Manager, also CFP. Hey. Hey, Danny. And we got Fred Coleman, CFP, Wealth Manager. Welcome back. Thank you, Danny. First question on Ask Annex. There are so many indices. What do you guys follow? And she put that many O's on so. There's so <laughs> many indices. What do you guys follow? Uh, there are a lot. You can make an index for pretty much anything that you want to track. You know, from an internal standpoint, what we like to look at is going to be specific to the goal or the breakdown of what we're trying to accomplish. And then, you know, indices give you kind of that framework. And then obviously as active managers, we want to beat that indice then as well too. So you want to really know what you're, what you're mapped up against. From a client perspective, a lot of times they focus on whatever they hear in the news, which a lot of times is the S&P 500. When tech is doing Isn't really, most of the time it's the Dow though? The Dow is kind of the weird one. That's the longest one that's been out there, but it's only 30 companies and it's got a really weird mix to it. And that's really important when you look at industry is how do they create it and how are they tracking it? So the Dow is a price weighted index, which means that they've got their 30 stocks and they're ranked by the price per share. So the highest price per share has the highest weight. The lowest price per share has the lowest weight. So Apple, which is there, is not even a top 10 company in the Dow, but it's the largest company in the world. So for the S&P, it's the largest weighting there. So very, very different there. Really, when we're looking at things, we want to try to broaden that out. So we like ACWI, IMI. And what that stands for, the ACWI is the All Country World Index. IMI is the Investable Market Index. And it's basically 99% of the world's equities fit into that index. So very, very broad, gives you a lot of room, but you want to make sure you're covering everything when you're looking at that. So that's why we look there. Next on Ask Annex, and it's a long one, recently discussed consolidating my 401k into my IRA with my blank broker and was told the funds I hold are proprietary to my former employer and cannot be moved. Suggestion was to speak to the 401k administrator and have them simply liquidate holdings and hold cash in the account, then roll it over. Since nothing is paid out to me directly, this supposedly won't trigger any tax concerns. Does this sound right? Yes, you have to be very cautious when you're making these types of transactions. I recommend having a professional assist you with the rollover. Our client service managers here do an excellent job of getting on the phone with you to ensure that the rollovers are done correctly. If you are doing it yourself, most of the time you are going to have to liquidate the funds, but the key is to make sure that the check is made out to the custodian. 
even better, if the 401k company can wire the funds directly to the custodians, the funds should never touch your bank account. If it's coded as a direct rollover, then you won't have any tax implications. And also, if you haven't went through that rollover process yet, you know, feel free to reach out to us and we can help you out. Number three on Ask Annex, my mother-in-law is very risk averse. She found a list of six low risk investments. One of them is preferred stocks. Is that a low risk investment? I think there's two different parts to this question. So first preferred stocks, kind of what are they? So when you look at a capital structure of a company, they're generally going to be using stocks or what we would call common stocks or bonds. But in the middle ground, there's this weird area of preferred stocks. It kind of fits in the middle of the two when it comes to a risk standpoint. So let's say a company is going through bad times and has to go through bankruptcy. If they're not being sold to somebody else, what they'll have to do is sell all of their assets and start to pay out people. First is going to be bonds. That's the creditors, the people that they owe money to. If there's still money left over, then they do preferred stocks. Lastly, common stockholders. And most of the time, if that's the situation, common stockholders kind of don't get paid out. And that's the risk for having those stocks. So when you're looking at a capital structure, it fits right in between those two things. The second part of the question that you found a list of six low risk investments, that is really, really subjective. And it's subjective to the person, but also the portfolio. When we look at investing in anything, whether it's a bond or a stock, you want to look at not only the benefits of owning that investment, but you also want to look at it as a, in a context of your overall portfolio. There's times that you could have something that could be very high risk, lots of volatility, but if you add it to our portfolio, you might actually lower the risk of the portfolio. That's the benefit of diversification. I agree with Matt. I think it really depends on your definition of what risk is. They still are riskier than bonds, but not as quite as risky as a common stock. They do usually also carry a higher coupon and they don't have any term. Those coupon payments can go on essentially forever unless they're caught. Sometimes you do have the ability to convert them to common stock as well. Final question on Ask Annex. I'm holding funds in cash, but keep hearing I might miss the boat on transitioning to bonds. Until rates are cut, why am I not fine where I'm at? I'm going to assume that cash in this situation is in a high yield savings account, something that you're getting a higher interest rate at. And for that reason, you're hesitant to move out of something and take risk because you are getting paid to be in that high yield savings account right now. If you're just in a straight checking account and you're not getting any interest, well, you might want to at least look at that high yield savings account. But from a standpoint of getting four or 5% in your savings versus going to bonds, the reason why that you don't want to wait until yields come down is because bond prices will go up along that way. They work inversely of each other. So yields come down, prices go up. And if you wait till all of that's happened already, you've lost out the price appreciation of the bond and you're getting the lower yielded bond later on. Matt Moore is the investment team manager and a CFP. Thanks. Thank you. Fred Coleman, CFP and a wealth manager. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. That's Ask Annex. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management. It's a loss when someone passes, but when they took the time to do things correctly with a well-constructed estate plan, it makes distribution of assets far easier. And if you're on the list for some of those assets, there are right and wrong things to do. And you also need to manage your expectations. Alec Durand is an estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management. Got experience in all of this. Hey, Alec. Hey, Danny. We're going to cover key aspects of inheriting money as well as covering the ramifications like taxes, the need to be patient, and the expectation there might be some surprises in store, right? There, there can be, especially if you're, you're unprepared. First thing to determine is what you're inheriting. Is it cash, investments, real estate, or IRAs, 401ks? Why does that matter? It matters because different assets are treated differently, particularly for tax purposes. For example, 
retirement accounts like IRAs and 401ks uh, are subject to something called the SECURE Act. And, and other assets, depending on certain circumstances, could be entitled to step up or step down in basis. One thing you can be sure of, there are tax ramifications to inheriting money. This term, basic adjustment at death, what does that mean? So a basis adjustment means that the value of an inherited asset is either going to be stepped up or stepped down in value as of the date of death of the person leaving you that asset, depending on the type of asset it is. Particularly things like cash accounts, stocks, and real estate can be adjusted based on whether the person that passed away had that asset appreciate or depreciate in value during the course of their ownership of the property. Is that the same deal with like an IRA? No. IRAs are typically not entitled to an adjustment basis. And as I alluded to earlier, IRAs are subject to the SECURE Act. So there's different rules regarding inheriting those assets depending on your relationship to the person that left you the asset. For example, most non-spouse beneficiaries of IRAs are going to be subject to the 10-year rule under the SECURE Act, which means that they are going to have 10 years or December 31st on the 10th year after the date of death of the person passing away to completely liquidate their inherited account. The ramifications of inheriting money. We're talking with Alec Durant, an estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management. Next question, when inheriting money, how are you inheriting? There's three ways. There's outright, there's jointly, and then there's in a trust. Let's talk about outright. From a conceptual standpoint, that's probably the most simple way to inherit an asset. And it's it's when someone just leaves you individually as the inheriting person. So they named you on the payable on death of a bank account or something like that. And what it means is that once you obtain possession of the asset, you own it individually. You can do whatever you want with the asset. It's yours. How about jointly? It's somewhat similar, but it just means that you don't have sole ownership of that asset. It's most common in the real estate scenario. So grandma or grandpa passes away and leaves you joint ownership of a rental cabin or a vacation property. So you just need to be cognizant of the fact that you don't wholly own that property. And depending on how well the person laid out their estate plan, there could be certain restrictions on what you can do with your ownership share of that property. And then there's inheriting money within a trust. Generally, when you inherit money in a trust, it's an irrevocable trust, meaning that you can't go back and change the terms of that trust. So you need to be aware that there could be restrictions left under the terms of that trust on what you can do with that property, whether you can divest yourself of it and when and if you're going to get control of that property. We see a lot of this at Annex Wealth Management, the ramifications of inheriting money. We can offer a couple suggestions. The one, and this is just common sense, don't spend it before you get it. Absolutely. Estate administrations, whether there's a trust involved or whether it's a will-based estate plan or whether there's no estate plan in place, administrations take time. There's going to be wrinkles that pop up in any situation. There's also going to be debts and expenses that have to get paid as well as any applicable estate taxes. The figure that you see on a balance sheet might not always be the figure that you're going to end up inheriting. So it's important to to remember to keep a clear head and make decisions only after you've actually received the inheritance, not before. And then keep in mind, Uncle Sam's going to be come knocking. Right. If there's any applicable estate taxes that could take a hit on it. And also depending on the asset that you inherit, you could actually owe income taxes. The best example is, you know, a traditional IRA or a 401k. 
distributions from those assets are ordinary income. So you will have to pay income taxes based on those distributions. And you need to be aware of that when you're inheriting them. And our final step is be prepared to deal with your inheritance as part of a trust that will be a little bit more controlled. It can be. Typically, you know, the state taxes are going to be treated the same way, whether you're inheriting something outright or in a trust. The difference becomes of whether the assets are going to accumulate inside the trust or whether they're going to be distributed to you outright. It can affect whether there's going to be income taxes at a trust level or at your personal level. You also need to be aware of any restrictions placed on that trust. You know, if someone else is going to be the trustee, you have to be willing and prepared to work with that trustee in order to get access to your inheritance. Ramifications of inheriting money. Alec Durand is an estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. Thank you. Back on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Two things. This show you can get as a podcast at the top of the hour. Also, I want to remind you again about that webinar that happens on Wednesday. It's called Cash on the Sidelines, How to Make it Work. Now, we know many of you are listening on the stream in many different states and time zones. I'll tell you, it's at 4 o'clock Eastern, 3 o'clock Central this coming Wednesday. So, insights how to manage cash, fixed income portion of your portfolio portfolio. Brian Jacobson, PhD, Annex Wealth Management's Chief Economist, Dave Spano, President and CEO. You guys are going to be doing that. Again, it's Wednesday. All of the details at AnnexWealth.com. Look for the events tab. I'm Danny Clayton. Dr. Brian Jacobson is in the studio. So is Dave Spano, our President and CEO. Yeah, thanks, Danny. This is going to be fun, uh, our presentation that's coming up. But, you know, when we talk about cash on the sidelines, sometimes people think just put it into work and fixed income, but that's not the only choice. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about next week. That's right. Yeah, there's a whole mosaic of things that you can actually go into as far as if you are sitting in cash wanting to put it to work, maybe you're not comfortable enough for some reason to go all into equities or whatever. There are almost like a gradation, this whole spectrum of opportunities where you can be in cash you could be in money market accounts. You could be in certificates of deposits. You could even go into short-term investment grade debt or even preferred stocks. These are all things that are almost on like a continuum of risks. And that's the way we look at it, folks. And for example, we had someone come in this past week and they had sold part of their business. The money was sitting in their bank's money market account getting substantially less than what the market rate is. And so we talked a little bit about that, about what they could do. So that is one choice to start with on that risk parameter. There is. And just because it's called a money market account doesn't mean that it is just the same thing no matter where you go. So you have to really get into the details, go beyond just the label. For example, if you go to a bank and you can get a money market account, oftentimes offers check writing privileges, things like that. Uh, If it's less than two 250000 you get the FDIC guarantee on there. A lot of people really value that, right? But you can also have money market mutual funds. Right. So even though they both say money market, they're quite different. The money market mutual funds, you don't get that FDIC guarantee. So there is a little bit more risk there. But oftentimes, the yields can be materially higher. Now, when I've been looking at the data and what the Federal Reserve has done is actually been able to go to households and find out how much do people have in like their checking accounts, their savings accounts, their money markets accounts. Most recently, there's about $3.9 trillion sitting in checking accounts, probably earning 0% interest. Mm about $9.4 trillion sitting in savings accounts, which maybe it earns a little bit more, but when I went to a couple websites, I saw savings account rates ranging from 
I kid you not, 0.01% mm-hmm. at some point places up to about 5%. So huge range of opportunity. Why we're talking about this, folks, is the Federal Reserve is indicating that they're going to lower rates sometime in 2024. If they do that, you're likely to see the banks follow suit and start lowering rates. And so if you want to either lock in those higher rates, that's part of the conversation, mm-hmm. or start to put some of that money to work, even if you start to stage it in, as we like to say, yep. that's an idea that you can find even dividend paying stocks. So on this continuum that you're talking about is really why you sit down with an advisor and work yourself through that. That's right. And what I like to look at as far as what are your liquidity needs, right? I mean, obviously the checking account, it serves a purpose as far as the convenience associated with being able to write checks. But then if you don't need that money locked or for those liquidity reasons for, let's say, a rainy day fund, you can make that work a little bit smarter and a little bit harder for you. Dave, I remember back in the day, the biggest decision you had to make is which bank you're going to get because mm-hmm. you're either going to get an alarm clock or you're going to get a blanket. <laughs> or a toaster, right? <laughs> right. And people used to go from bank to bank and open up CDs. That was a thing yeah. for a long time. Well, that, that made sense when they were so high, right? Well, it yeah. made sense yeah. when you would get the toaster as well. But <laughs> yeah, right. there's the, one, the one last piece I want to get to because it has a dramatic effect is sometimes people forget the taxability, if you will, of the positions that they take. That's correct. And this is really, I think, most relevant for especially high net worth individuals, high income individuals who are in those higher tax brackets. If you think about, let's say, a savings account at a bank, that is going to be taxed at the state and the federal level. So double taxes there. If you were instead to, let's say, use a money market mutual fund that invests in U.S. Treasury securities, that's only taxed at the federal level, not at the state level. So you can save yourself some rather significant taxes there at the state levels. Not only is it tax-free or taxable, but for example, is it dividend income, capital gain income? These are things that go into the plan. And that's why, folks, you need to have a full-scale wealth management firm that talks to you about tax planning, about estate planning, about investments, and about saving for the future. And folks, we're going to meet you right where you're at. For most of our clients, the sweet spot is Annex Comprehensive Wealth. It's just a great place, full service. Annex Private Client is if you have complex needs combined with high net worth. But Annex Ignite is a great place to start. And there's many people, I'd say recent college graduates, you know, early 30s, place uh, age groups like that. That's where it is. But again, we'll figure that out for you. The key, though, Head to our website, it's AnnexWealth.com, and click that Get Started button. Make the effort the reward, and the effort is just reaching out, and that's easy. AnnexWealth.com, Get Started button. From there, you can reap the benefits of working with a fee-only fiduciary, not just this year, but every year after. Click that Get Started button at AnnexWealth.com. Always on demand, but back on the radio next Saturday at 10. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ.